LCM. Today's date is October 1st, 2023. This morning we have a, a rich, uplifting, and joyful word for you. Now if you look at our faces, Pastor Wade's face and my face, oh, you must notice something. Oh, it's not the buttercream that cures our ashy skin. It's not the masculine-scented lotion that softens the Brillo pad of our beard. It is the oil of joy that can only come from the throne of God. Today is a day that we get to have supernatural joy. And we're going to celebrate it to its fullest extent. It has been a joy to progress through the Feast of Israel. What we've learned as Gentiles is that we get to participate in God's overall annual reminder of his plan. You know, it, isn't it good to have a father that shows us clear steps of what he expects and the final end of the matter? You know that all feasts, all feasts are aimed at at a great height. They're aimed at a pinnacle. And that pinnacle is the feast of Sukkot. Everyone say Sukkot. Sukkot. Now Sukkot is signified by a variety of things, but one of the highest elements that you do to participate in Sukkot is to have joy. In fact, they're commanded to celebrate this feast with joy. This morning, we're going to have joy that we get to be participants in the rehearsal of God's plan. Particularly the rehearsal of the Feast of Sukkot. And we are going to open our eyes and see the marvelous and wonderful things of God's word that points to the fulfillment of Sukkot and its eternal promise for every single believer in this room. So are you filled with joy this morning? Do you have something pouring out from heaven that is so much richer than buttercream and beard lotion? Let me hear a hallelujah in the house. Come on, that leads us to the title of today's message. The title is The Pinnacle of Sukkot. Say that with me. The Pinnacle of Sukkot. Turn with us to Hebrews chapter 10 as we jump right into the scripture today. Pastor said, say buttercream when you get there. <laughs> Hebrews, no, don't do that. Hebrews 10. I'll get distracted all day. Don't do that. Hebrews 10 in verse 1. It says this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Somebody say good things. Not the reality themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Look, I want to stop just for a second and let you understand a larger picture of what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is to teach us and to show you over and over again the things that were going on in the everyday life of the Hebrew people, of the Jewish people, of the nation of Israel. He was comparing this to Jesus Christ himself as the fulfillment of everything that they had spent their life and developed their life around. 
It begins with speaking about angels in the book of, in Hebrews chapter 1. Then it begins to compare and show what Moses was trying to teach them and how Jesus was the fulfillment. Then about the Levitical priesthood, the high priest, the sacrifice, and even the feast of Israel were designed to show you something. And the writer of Hebrews is making this abundantly clear by comparing their everyday life with exactly who Jesus is and what he fulfilled. Somebody say, that's amazing. So when he's speaking here, he's not being negative about the law. He's actually saying the law was a shadow of the amazing things that are coming. This is an amazing thing. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would not, they have not stopped being offered, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. Look at verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder. Say, annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, then the Messiah said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So here you're seeing a treatise, an explanation a Bible commentary about itself, about the annual feast and the sacrifices that the nation of Israel made. That feast and sacrifices were a constant annual reminder. Somebody say annual reminder. Of what was still needed. Of what was to come in the life of Jesus Christ that would fulfill that every part of their daily life because he brought atonement by his own blood. See, and now, somebody say now. now. These annual reminders now serve as what Jesus has done for us and what is still yet to be done in the future. Do you see what's on your screen? Jesus, the one who has fulfilled this, says, here I am. Wow. You could have a whole sermon on just here I am, couldn't you? It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. This idea, this looking forward about what's there. See, it's looking forward to the realities themselves are what these annual reminders are designed to do. If only we had something in our lives that were like an annual reminder. If only we had some aliyah that we had to make and travel somewhere as a group of people. If only there were something like a One Association conference. And what do we do at a One Association conference? Besides stay up way too late, besides meet people that you haven't and reacquaint yourselves with others, what you do is you're celebrating what God has done. Man, look at all that God has done. Look at all the people who are here. This is amazing. I remember when we started in a garage, and now look at this place. This building can't even hold us. The joy that we have causes the building to shake. Oh, I love it. We're celebrating what God has done in the past. We're celebrating what God is doing in our midst. The churches that are being, uh, that, are, that are, have already started since the last conference that was there. The celebration of what God is doing and also what God has yet to accomplish in us. The works that we must do, the works that we are committed to, because that's always God's design. He's done this with annual reminders throughout the history of Israel, and we're getting to partake in that today. Let's go on to verse 19. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. Hallelujah. 
Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And it continues. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards loving good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So these annual reminders... These annual reminders are here to give us a clear expectation of what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. That is, the, that is for the sole purpose of giving us, as his sons and daughters, confidence. Confidence that our Father does have a plan, he does not lie, and he will fulfill everything that he has said. So therefore, when we participate in the annual reminders and in the feast, we get to participate in the reality of God's plan becoming manifest on earth and more pertinently inside of each one of us. Well, what we've been recently talking about has been Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah is the Feast of Trumpets. This was a summoning of Israel for the fall feast. And it was to be an annual reminder of the fact that you have been shown the plan and purpose of God. That he has laid it out for you to know what to expect. And what would come immediately after, or soon after, 10 days after, would be the, the feast of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. This was an annual reminder that you have been atoned for by Adonai himself. That as a nation, yes, you would, you would enter into this day in, from introspection, but you would stand there with an expectation of salvation being poured out to the whole nation. This was to set up the, the reception of God's deliverance, his redemption, and his salvation for the entire people group. Man, do you remember that first day that you stood in God's presence? That you were washed, you were clean, guilt and shame no longer clothe you, but rather the bright and white linen garments of Jesus himself and the righteous deeds that come with him. Standing there, anticipating God to make you whole, God to make you clean, is the reason to rejoice. That there is hope for a nation. There is hope for God's people. We don't have to dwell in mourning and despair. We get to celebrate the, the salvation of our God. What this would lead to is that it would lead to producing two things. Everybody say two things. One, it produced a remembrance of how Adonai has set us free from slavery the first time. And many, many, many times after that. So yes, that, that remember of standing in his presence on the first day, and therefore what he did to Pharaoh, we get the opportunity to relive that each and every day afterwards. The second thing, everybody say second thing. It should produce a desire in you to see 
Every nation of the world experienced that exact same kind of freedom, that exact same kind of deliverance that only comes through life in Messiah. Once again, I'll, I'll hearken back to that day you first stood in his presence. Yes, you were washed. Yes, you were clean. But do you remember that immediately afterwards, you wanted everyone that you knew that was dwelling in death to have that same life that was inside of you? And it wasn't walking up to them with a frown upon your face. Wade, I have received life. <laughs> have you? Instead, it's, come on, man, let's just sit down. I want to show you. I want to tell you what God has done in my life. It's not the turning over of a leaf. I've become a whole new tree together. Yeah. A whole new creation. It's with that joy of anticipating life that we want to be able to transfer the world needs what you have, and what you have is the source of joy from heaven. Come on now, church. Even in the passage that we just read, you start seeing what God has done for you, and then immediately the passage goes to, how can I encourage my brothers? How can I help those? How can I bring this to the world? Because that's what real transformation does inside of everyone. Somebody say, I'm confident. We are confident of what God is doing in us and that we are the answer that the world needs. Look at verse 35 of Hebrews 10 as well. So do not throw away your confidence. It's okay, I'm going to say it again. Do not throw away your confidence. Why? Because it will be richly rewarded. Your confidence in who God is. Your confidence in his purpose and plan that he has revealed to you by his grace. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Not just promised to you, but what he's promised to mankind. What his plan and purpose is. For in just a very little while, just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Somebody say, will not delay. Church, we want you to have confidence today. We want you to stand a little taller. We want you to sit a little bit taller. We want you to put out your chest. And so I've got some confidence, not just in my own ability, but in who God is, in his character, in his plan, in his purpose. I have confidence that the blood of Jesus is going to allow me to draw near, that I can get close to him. I have confidence in doing the will of God. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. We're going to have confidence that we will receive what he's promised as we persevere. We're going to have confidence. Check this one out. We're going to have confidence in the time that we're in. The exact season that he's placed us. We're going to have confidence that our God is not going to delay. Oh, that doesn't add fear to you. That adds confidence because we can trust in who he is and where he has set us and all the great things that he's not only accomplishing in us, but that he would use us to accomplish for the rest of the world. Show me your confidence. Yeah! Confidence can be seen in your posture and in your praise. Better yet, in both at the same time. Same, well, that's going to be a new one, isn't it? Same time. Uh, we need to make a book of these things. It doesn't really matter what the phrase is as long as we say we, same time, same that, that time. exact way. Oh, kind, same time. Yeah. 
All kinds, yes. There you go, Ray. So remind me again, what feast are we talking about today? Sukkot. That is because as of Friday evening, it was the 15th of the month of Tishri. That is the day that Sukkot starts on the Jewish calendar. So to, to give you some background from the Torah itself, we have a slide with two scriptures that we just want to lay out there as a foundation for you. Leviticus 23, 39 through 43 says, So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, there's a harvest that is now in hand. Celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Verse 41 makes it even more clear. Celebrate! Celebrate this festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters, or sukkah, when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So here's what Leviticus 23 is doing. It is associated with the full, complete, and final harvest of that year. It's associated with remembering your deliverance and that he has brought you into the land. So out of Egypt and to the actual inheritance of the promised land. And what this was causing them to do is that as uh, Jews would celebrate and celebrate Sukkot, they're putting themselves in the shoes of their ancestors. They're remembering anew God's gracious provision to his people and what happens when you fully rely and depend upon your God. Now, the next, next passage in Deuteronomy 16, 13 says this. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. That matches what we just read in Leviticus 23. Now, more specifically, verse 14 says, be joyful at your festival. Be joyful at your festival. It's a command of how to celebrate this seventh and final feast. You, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows, everybody who lives in your towns... For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. That's important. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands. And this is the best. Your joy will be complete. So here in Deuteronomy 16, it is the attitude and means by which you celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. And the whole goal is that you would have complete joy. Looking at what God 
has done in Harvest, what God has done in your family, what God has done in your community and even the entirety of the nation, therefore producing hope and joy for what lies in the future. So to, to put this together and see something that we're familiar with in the Psalms, but now in light of how to celebrate Sukkot, everybody turn with us to Psalm 126. Psalm 126 and verse 1. It says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, like water in a desert. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Do you hear the themes of Sukkot here in this psalm? That the idea of what God does in a group of people is a testimony to the entire world, to all the nations that see what God does inside of those who are faithful to him. You may sow with tears of joy, but you get to reap with shouts of joy. You may sow in tears, and then you get to reap with shouts of joy. See, all of this is designed to produce two things in us. Somebody say two things. It's designed to remind us of how Adonai has set us free. Not only the first time, but every time thereafter in an ever ongoing way. And it should also produce in us a desire to see every nation of the world experience this kind of freedom and life in Messiah just as we've experienced. See, the aim and culmination of all the feasts, all the feasts were teaching lessons, but they all culminated. They came together. They coalesced. It made the most sense, and it showed the absolute goal on Sukkot. And that was so that the nations would take notice of God's people and God's steadfast love for his people. See, moreover, the joy of God's people experiencing the fulfillment of his plan and purpose was causing the nations to want to experience what God's people already have. It was a testimony to all the nations of the world. So as a reminder of something that we covered many times in foundations and in sermons is that God's aim has always been about reaching every nation on this planet. Well, you'll remember this slide that we're going to put out. This is from Genesis 10. It's a slide of the 70 nations that came from Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. So from Genesis 10, let's just walk through this and put some numbers together. So we have 14 nations from Japheth. We have 30 nations from Ham. We have 26 nations from Shem. And that totals to? 70. That totals to? 70. So clearly, what God established from the very beginning that he put into his word was the connection between the number 70 and nations. It repeats many times over. If you want to know more about that, ask any one of the pastors to sit down with you as you buy them a cup of coffee, and they'll explain it to you. So this clear connection that God is making to the number 70 and nations is that it has always been his aim to gather a harvest from all nations. That there's no 
place on earth that he is not going to leave untouched in re uh, redeeming and harvesting souls that draw near to him and seek to dwell underneath his eternal, eternal canopy of his dwelling. Look, we have many, many sermons on Sukkot. I'm just going to list two of my favorites that we have in the anthologies of LCM sermons. One is a heavyweight Sukkot, all the way back from 2010 with Pastor Eric. And then in 2011, there was one called A Whole Lot of Bull, in which you're able to see and you're starting to understand what Pastor just said, that the concept that from the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you get 70 sons that represent the 70 nations of the world. On Sukkot, in addition to those 70 nations, what you see are many, many things that testify to God's heart for the nations. And one of that is the sacrifices that occur of bulls on the Feast of Sukkot. We want to remind you of that information. Most of you, this is a reminder. Some of you, this is new information. But we're going to get this and we're going to move on because this is important for us to grasp. You see here, on the first day of Sukkot, that you get 13 bulls that are offered. On the second day, 12, and so on until the seventh day, the last day, you get seven that are offered. When you total those numbers up, we've done the math for you, it totals 70 bulls that are offered on behalf of the nations of the world at the Feast of Sukkot every year as an annual reminder for Israel. Now these numbers you can see, they come from Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 29, that 70 bulls are offered. When you start looking into the idea of 70, you see it in so many places, but we're using this as a representative sample of a much larger principle that we've taught on many, many times here. The 70 bulls, one for each of the nations of the world, was an annual reminder to the nation of Israel that each year as they did this, that their goal, their aim, what God's heart was, was to do something in them that would reach the entirety of the world. And he was stirring up, stoking up their desire. Each time they saw these bulls being added up, it was supposed to stir a desire in the people of God to reach the world with what they had been given. That is a whole lot of bull. So look, on this topic, there, there are countless resources we could review on this very subject, but the main text that we're going to engage in this morning and draw from is going to come from the book of John. And this is, this is explicitly why. The repeated perspective that John writes from and the perspective that we want each of you to grasp today is this. Jesus is Sukkot. So this is the perspective, the predominant perspective that John writes from. Jesus is Sukkot. Say that with me. Jesus is Sukkot. He is the fulfillment of all feasts. And more so, always aimed at the end goal and eternal fulfillment of Sukkot that ends up redeeming every nation on earth. So turn with us to the book of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. See, the entirety of the book of John, John writes his gospel from a unique perspective. Near the end of his gospel, it literally says why he picked the things to write about that he wrote about. It says that uh, 
that we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah and so that you may have life in his name. That's what John says about his own writings. So here in John 1, he's beginning with a concept. And we're going to tell you that this is part of, what, of how Jesus embodies the feast of Sukkot. From John 1 and verse 14, it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we say that Jesus is the fulfillment, he is Sukkot in himself, we're seeing that the fullness of God was made manifest. Here it says, his dwelling was among us. The literal translation, and if you go to something like a Young's literal, then it says, he did tabernacle among us. He literally made a dwelling. He literally made a tabernacle among us. The Feast of Sukkot is about making sukkahs. The kids in the back right now have little tents that they're making to celebrate Sukkot. They are making a tabernacle that they could celebrate what Sukkot is all about. Jesus is the embodiment of this. He came and he dwelt in the flesh so that we could see God's glory, the glory of his one and only Son. Not only did he just come and tabernacle, but do you see how beautiful this is? He made his dwelling where? Among us. Wow. He didn't just come to earth. He came and dwelt among us. Now let's be really clear about what the scripture is saying here. First and foremost, it indicates among Israel, in the land of Israel, that he came and tabernacled among. See, the fullness of God in temporary dwelling is a sign of deliverance from death and that we will in fact possess and his people will in fact possess the entirety of the earth. See, the glory of God filled him, filled the temple, and now our aim is to be one with him in that same kind of glory, that exact same representation. As God has made his dwelling here, we know that he has also made his dwelling with us. Are y'all learning something? All right, all right. Uh, I got to refresh a little bit. Let me come on down. Yeah, the price is right. So we're learning something this morning. And I'm sure there's only maybe a handful, less than five in this whole room, that growing up, that you woke up every morning and you were joyful and ready to go to school. That was not me. Today is a day of joy. And although that we are still learning the complexities and depths of God's word, don't forget, we're still going to be joyful this morning. Y'all ready to learn some more? With joy? Let's do it. Come on. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Yeah, I could feel you guys interceding for me as I leapt upon the stage and hoping I wasn't fall. I'd have to hit my life alert. Yes, you've given me hinds feet. So 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 2. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king, at the feast that is in the seventh month. So 
This, this is uh, the dedication of Solomon's temple, and it is clear, and will become even more clear as we go through this passage, that the feast that they're referring to in the seventh month is Sukkot. We just got through reading from John about how the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And his glory was, uh, or God's glory was upon his son, that fulfillment of tabernacled. What we see here is a foreshadow, a shadow in type of what was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. So therefore, the ark that is now coming into the temple and the glory of God that will descend upon it is occurring during the feast of Sukkot, identifying even more so that Jesus is Sukkot. Take a look at verse 4. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Church, the ark, which at this time only contained the two tablets given to Moses, was both reminding the people of their initial deliverance and how many times that he had delivered them over the course of time and the fact that they are currently in the land that was promised to their fathers. The annual reminder was solidified as the presence of God was dwelling among the people now in a more permanent way than it had ever, they had ever witnessed and partaken of before. All right, we're, we're going to continue to verse 11. I just want to let you guys know, uh, this is my second most uh, section of scriptures ever. Romans 12 is my first. Second Chronicles 5 is my second. I'm so joyful we get to read it this morning. <laughs> and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard, get this, in unison in praise. Quick side note. What establishes unison in praise? First, being consecrated. Pursuing the holiness of God and that blood that atones for you and allows you to stand right in his presence will then allow you to be unified in how you celebrate Sukkot. In unison and, in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise the Lord, they sang this, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So, as we, as I mentioned earlier, we have the encapsulation uh, of this entire process. That you have consecration that leads you to joyous unity, and the result is that the glory of God fills the temple. Church, this morning, 
is a time of great celebration and rejoicing. Here's why. This is because the Son of God has delivered you. The Son of God has consecrated you. He has made you holy in his sight. He has given you a joyous unity with him and with those sitting on your left and right in front of you and behind you. And, oh, and, and he has made his glorious dwelling within your temple and within this church body. As we were worshiping this morning, didn't you sense the tangible presence of God as we were coming into unity with him and with each other? Your eyes have witnessed the glory of his presence tabernacling within you. And you are walking in the fullness of his grace and truth right now. Church, we got to tell you that today is a day of joyful celebration. You get to rejoice that God is dwelling within us. Come on now. With that reality at hand, Jesus, who is our Sukkot, has empowered you to bring to the world what he has, in fact, imparted to you. See, you should have a joyful sense of an earnest desire to bring his temple to the world around you, to let them experience the glory of his dwelling right alongside of us. Now, though the people of Israel in Solomon's day witnessed the glory of the, God, of the Lord fill the temple of their time, it was the son of David, Jesus, who is Sukkot, who would stand in the very same spot almost a thousand years later and fill the temple of his time with another annual reminder of Sukkot. Go with us to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Say the pinnacle of Sukkot as you turn. Hey, one more time. Do it with joy. With a smile. There you go. You're doing good. John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival. On the last and greatest day of the festival! Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Doesn't it give a reality whenever you read the scripture in context of attitude from which is written? All right, so John 7, 2 clearly sets the stage for this passage because it declares that it is during the feast of Sukkot. And what, what Jesus is crying out aloud by saying, anyone who is thirsty, this should bring to mind immediately, because of the Feast of Sukkot, of the journey that the forefathers had through the desert. Right? Because Sukkot is plural for, for booth or sukkah. And they were commemorating Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land. And that involved, yes, a dwelling, but it also involved water. Right? I don't know, maybe water from a rock. How about water that was bitter and made sweet? Or water that was in 12 
springs and 70 palm trees. This would bring that all back to mind the minute he began to shout this in a loud voice. That God provides for his people as they journey from Egypt to the promised land. He's declaring by saying, come to me and drink. He's declaring, I'm that rock. I am that spring. I am that living water. I am the one who supplied for God's people in that traversing from Egypt to the promised land. He is that fount of heavenly water. And because he is that, you, every single one of you whose life is found in Messiah, you then become a life-giving spring just as he is. Not only does the glory of God fill you as his temple, but life-giving water flows from you. Being that he is proclaiming this on the last and greatest day of Sukkot, the people present would immediately understand his words due to the activities that were taking place. Here's what I mean. Talmudic tradition teaches that water was drawn from the Siloam Spring in Jerusalem every day of Sukkot with great ceremony. Then that water was brought to the temple. So here the priest would celebrate the pouring of the water, meaning that you would have one golden vessel covered in divinity pouring life-giving water into earthen vessels. So the annual reminder... Jesus is speaking on the last and greatest day of the feast. And this annual reminder, this is what is going on in the hearts and the minds of everyone who is witnessing what's happening. When he stands and speaks in a loud voice, it is thundering through their souls because it's thundering through their history, through their present, and what will be for them as well. In fact, we have a, a work on the screen for you uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles from a gentleman by the name of Freeman. And he suggests the special nature of the last day of the feast and why the father chose that time for his son to make this declaration. Take a look at this slide. The last and greatest day of Sukkot. The ceremony of water pouring associated with this festival in post-exilic times was reflected in Jesus' proclamation in the verses that we're reading. Look at the highlighted or the emboldened part there. It's recognition. What they're doing is as much of a recognition of rain as a gift from God. The water that he provided in the Exodus. The ongoing, ever-increasing nature of him needing to rain on their fields, to rain in their world, to rain in their land for productivity to come about. So when Jesus stands up and in a loud voice, come to me if you're thirsty, drink of this water. I am this living water. What he is doing is they're, engage, they're engaging with this and understanding that the fruitfulness in their own life is now tied to this man and what he's saying. Look at the second paragraph there. This feast had a historical reference to the exodus from Egypt, reminded of the Jews of their wandering and dwelling in booths in the wilderness. Look at the highlighted and underlighted part there. Israel's life rested upon the redemption from which they were receiving. Their life rested on the redemption that they were receiving. Sukkot celebrated the way that Adonai provided water in the Exodus. He provided the way that he also fulfilled that he would supply their water in the land, in the promised land, which they were in at this moment. Jesus, as the fulfillment of Sukkot, is now supplying living water to all who are thirsty. 
satisfying them as if the rains are falling from heaven so that they can produce a fruitful harvest of righteousness. This is a promise of what will occur in the new heavens and the new earth in the future as well. See, Israel's life, just like ours, is completely dependent upon and rests upon the redemption, the water that flows from Messiah himself. Jesus is Sukkot, and what he's saying is that everything that Sukkot about, he is offering to his people in this moment. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And he gave an even a deeper level of our understanding of a very uh, familiar verse to everybody. Because what was happening that moment is that they were experiencing their prescribed annual reminder. And by Jesus crying out in a loud voice, he is saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of this. I am that source of living water that was in the Exodus and was in the promised land. I am here to bring you life. Come to me. Well, what it would have also easily come to the minds of the Jews that were standing there witnessing this when Jesus cried out in a loud voice is Isaiah 12, 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With, what's that next word? Joy. With joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. All right, y'all want to know what it means for us? I mean, right, right here, right now. This is the day that you can rejoice. Why? Because as living waters have quenched the thirst of your dry and weary souls. He, as the divine and golden vessel, he has poured out his life-giving libations into your being. And his well never runs dry. Much unlike the, uh, the Coke dispensers or whatever fountain drink you, you love to partake of. It doesn't fizzle out and just give you carbonation. He, as a living spring, is always an available tap and source of life for all. So right now, hither upon us, you can raise your voice and declare praise unto your living God. It should take on the attitude of Psalm 16. Verse 11, Pastor Wade. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You know that it's been the Father's joy since the beginning to bring you salvation? It's been his joy anticipating to bring you deliverance and atonement. And it's still the Father's delight to fill you with inexpressible joy. Parents, isn't that what you want to see as a result in your children? That all of that discipline, all of that correction, all of that encouragement is supposed to rise within them as a spring of life. And they look at you one day, one day and they say, Dad, Mom, thank you for being such great parents to me. That is the hope that we all have. 
and we will see. I'm talking about that joy that overflows the limits of your heart, that joy that breaks through the bulkhead of sorrow and despair, and it overflows with life for everyone around you. So right now, let your mouths lift up a joyful shout of praise. You not only get to receive living waters that flow directly from Yeshua himself, you get to become a source a river of living water that is available to flow out of you right now. Somebody say, that's a good word. Those rivers of living water. That river of living water that flows from within us. See, in the prophets, Ezekiel has shown a vision that connects to the elements of Sukkot. God's dwelling and water flowing from the temple that produces life for God's people and for the nations. Go with this to Ezekiel 47, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Somebody say the pinnacle of Sukkot as you're turning. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Now, rather than just your normal or initial understanding of this passage about being a supernatural vision of God's eternal temple on earth, we want to let you know today that it contains the core foundation of what Sukkot is all about. It is a vision of the reality to which Sukkot and all the other feasts were aimed towards, and that being God fully dwelling in and with mankind on earth and providing an eternal source of life that would flow from there. Bringing full restoration that starts with the shallows of one life and goes to the depths of all nations. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Immediately after it's gone through the process of deepening deeper and deeper and deeper as the water goes forth. Verse 7, when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. So the great number of trees on each side of the river in Ezekiel's vision are a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. The abundance of life emanating from the temple transforms the most barren, lifeless areas into vibrant havens, teeming and swarming with fruitfulness and life. So therefore, Sukkot it was an annual reminder and celebration of God's power to bring about full restoration to the entirety of creation. And traditionally, Sukkot is celebrated by the waving of tree branches and the, the fruit that was harvested during that time. This was supposed to be a declaration of not only God's provision of the present, but an expectation of God's full restoration of earth, occurring centrally in the promised land of Israel. Take a look at verse 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. 
Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. I mean, what a beautiful picture here. You may not have ever connected this passage with Sukkot, but in light of Sukkot, this is amazing. The ever-verdant, unfailing fruit on these trees serves as food. The constant provision to sustain life. The never-withering leaves provide healing and full restoration because the source of the water, the source of life, is from the very sanctuary, the very tabernacle, the very temple of God himself. See, his living water has entered into your Dead Sea. Can somebody say amen? I mean, are you catching this? That the path of this river takes it right to the Dead Sea, right in those areas, and what happens to the Dead Sea? It became fresh. It lost its saltiness. Pastor, I used to be salty, but now I'm fresh. <laughs> Come on, has anybody ever had a little saltiness in your speech? A little saltiness in your attitude that it took the waters of the very tabernacle of God to come in and transform you? I mean, we're talking about an uncrossable river. What looked like a trickle when it began that is now an uncrossable river that's enabled you and empowered you to be fruitful in every season of your life. Church, this is true of you. This is not just up here preaching what we're hoping for. We're actually seeing it in your life. We're seeing the saltiness get taken away. We're seeing your fruitfulness increase in every area of your life. We can see the trajectory of somebody like Cody Stevens. We see that every aspect in his life is only getting better and better and growing and more fruitful. See, that fountain of life, church, the fountain of life brings about healing. Just a minute in his presence starts to heal the brokenness on the inside of you. It brings full restoration. The things that you were afraid of, the things that you were wounded by, the things that you could never overcome, a moment in this river of his presence changes everything. It not only changes it in you, but it changes it then in everyone that you come in contact with. Church, that gives us reason for joy today. Can somebody say amen? amen. Well, realize that what Jesus is as Sukkot, it's brought you empowerment. It's brought you the ability to have the glory of God rest upon you. It's brought you the ability to have life-giving springs of water flow out of you that then turns the saltiness of others into fresh springs as well. Well, you should have a joyful sense of earnest desire to bring his living water to the world around you. That when you hear that salty speech, whenever you see barren and fruitless branches, you should know that God puts you in front of that person because you are the answer that God has chosen for them. And it's to be seen as a joyful task. So what we covered is the dwelling and the water that's associated with Sukkot. Are you ready for another facet of Sukkot? Say the pinnacle of Sukkot as you turn to John chapter 8. The pinnacle of Sukkot. John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am 
the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, as you can recount, we're still in that feast of Sukkot when Jesus says this. So why is he saying, I am the light of the world? It's because on the feast of Sukkot, you would have a 70-foot tall menorah. I mean, that's huge. Seven stories. A 70-foot tall menorah that's symbolic of God's presence with Israel in the desert and the very presence that led them to the land of inheritance and that same presence that was there whenever the temple was dedicated in Solomon's day. So therefore, as Jesus is Sukkot, he is that great golden lampstand. And by saying that I am the light of the world, the backdrop are these 70-foot-tall menorahs ablaze on this great and wonderful day. Now, but, but get this. Not only is it a requirement for us to be in his light. because That should harken back to 1 John chapter 1. Walk in the light as he is in the light. But as we see here in John 8, 12, the very last part of it says, but will have the light of life. Not only are we supposed to be warmed by the fiery glow of his presence, we are supposed to be ablaze from the inside out with his fiery presence. Whenever Jesus uh, is, is filling you with his presence, not only should it be fire in his eyes that are ablaze, as mentioned in Revelation 1, People should be able to look into your eyes. They should be able to see the countenance of your king. They should be able to see the menorah of God through the windows into your soul. Church, when we say that Jesus is Sukkot, we want to point you back towards 2 Chronicles chapter 7 now to see how what John was writing was testified to in the history and the annual reminder that came during Israel's existence. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer. So we had just come from what we saw of the glory of God filling the house of God. Then Solomon prays, and now we are here. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Church, so after the consecration, their unity in song, the glory of the Lord overwhelming the priest's service, Solomon prays and the light of God's approval descends upon their sacrifice. The glory of the Lord not only keeps the priest from their duties, they couldn't even, they weren't even able to enter into the house of the Lord. Church, because it was Sukkot and their hearts were in line with God's commands and his holiness, their response was to worship and give thanks, rejoicing in the faithful and enduring character of God to his people. In fact, we want to show you a historical reference now, and we're going to show it to you on the screen. This is taken from the Mishnah from Sukkah 5.1 and 5.2. Let me just read it to you really quickly. When the temple was standing 
was still standing. Great pillars like candelabra were erected and illumined in the court of women. Levite youths poured oil into the basins for the different branches of the candelabra and worn out priestly undergarments made of linen acted as wicks. Because the temple stood atop a hill, the blazing candles illuminated the city below so that the denizens of Israel could see from afar. What's a denizen? It's a good question. A citizen is someone who belongs to the nation. A denizen is everyone who is there and present at the moment. The citizens and all of the guests and all of the visitors and all of the nations were there to see it. This glorious blaze of fire recalled to Israel God's Shekinah, the pillar of smoke by day and the fire by night that accompanied them throughout their wanderings in the wilderness. Check this out. Men of great skill danced bearing torches. One, Rabbi Simeon ben Gamaliel, is said to have juggled eight torches at a time. It's not a party till you got somebody juggling torches. Come on. That's next Sunday. (laughs) While the Levite orchestra played on, the Talmud says of the temple illumination that accompanied the water drawing ceremony, he who has not beheld this celebration has never seen joy in his entire life. See, you've never seen joy until you've seen the fullness of Sukkot on display. We're not talking about celebrating for seven minutes or seven hours. This is seven days of celebrating that God has made his dwelling with mankind. Celebrating that his water of life is flowing. Celebrating that the light of his glory is shining upon us. We want to remind you today that Sukkot is the culmination of all the other feasts. It was an annual reminder that pointed every member of society back to the freedom from slavery that Adonai brought initially and the many, many times he delivered them along their journeys. This was always meant to produce a desire in his people, to see every nation of the world experience the exact kind of freedom and life found only in Messiah. Now, did you catch that first underline and emboldened part there? The wicks of the giant candelabras were made of the worn-out linen priestly undergarments. As you think on that interesting spectacle, we want you to turn with us to Zechariah chapter 3. Say the pinnacle of Sukkot as you turn. Look, before we read this passage, and after you finish turning, look up here at us. Let us gaze into the windows of your soul and witness the lampstand of God burning bright inside of you. Show me your light. Ray, you got to open up a little bit more. You're Filipino, man. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. 
Then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Here's what we can glean from this in light of Sukkot. Standing in the light of God's presence is the very thing that will defend you from satanic accusations. It wasn't Joshua saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It was the Lord himself defending his sons. The Lord is the one who has removed your filthy clothes. The Lord is the one who has clothed you with glory and honor. In fact, he's clothed you with his very image, his royalty, his supremacy as your high priest. Therefore, dwelling in his light, you stand as a purified priesthood. That old is gone and the new has come. You are crowned with a holy headdress so that we collectively have the mind of Christ. And you are adorned not only with his image, but with the deeds of Christ that he has chosen you to perform. You know what he's done for us all that we can rejoice about right here and right now? Is that he has taken away your worn out priestly undergarments. He's taken that fruit of the loom that's no longer worthy of wearing. And it is going to be a wick that burns the bright light of our God. It is a flame, that flame of God that burns with the radiance of his glory inside of each and every one of us. It gives light to those around us who dwell in darkness. And it gives them the hope that they too can be washed and made clean. They can be sanctified and made holy in God's sight. Here's all they have to do. It's the same thing that you did. All they have to do is draw near to the lampstand of his presence. All they have to do is surrender their soiled lives to the one who can bring Sukkot life, giving power to their darkened condition. Isn't that what drew you near? When you saw the lamp and the life of God inside of another saint, you knew that where you stood, you no longer wanted to dwell, but you wanted what that person had. And when you drew near to his presence, his holy flame took off your filthy rags and it put upon you a righteousness that no man can earn himself. It put upon you an adornment of priesthood. It allowed you to participate in the mind, will, and emotions of your God. That is something to rejoice today about, saints. That is something to shout hallelujah and thank you, God. Church, those worn out garments. Worn out garments. What does that mean? That means the priests were effectively doing exactly what they had been instructed to do. We are not those who are trying to get as if we're rolling up in a nice uh, stretch limo into what God has for us. I envision it more of rumbling, bumbling, stumbling, end over end, getting there with a wife, that, with a life. With a life that is well spent. Still works. With a life. We're not talking about just 
failing. We're not talking about just coming to the end of your strength. We're talking about being worn out because you've used, so thoroughly used what God has given you that it's just worn out. That's the kind that makes a fire for uh, the wick for a fire of the lamp of God. Being absolutely consumed with everything that God has given you to do. Church, today's a day of joyful celebration. Rejoicing that our God dwells with us. Rejoicing that his river of life is flowing through us and that the light of his presence radiates from our very lives. With that reality at hand, Jesus, who is our Sukkot, has empowered you to bring that to the world which he has imparted unto you. You should have a joyful sense of earnest desire to bring his light to the world around you. Come on now. Look, we've been saying from the very beginning that Sukkot is the pinnacle of all other feasts. And that Jesus is that pinnacle, that culmination and fulfillment. So let's stay with our theme of the writings of Apostle John in order to understand what Sukkot means for us and how to inspire us to desire to see Sukkot fulfilled for the nations. So you ready to turn to the, one of our final verses? Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Say the pinnacle of Sukkot. The pinnacle of Sukkot. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So at the fulfillment of Sukkot, no physical temple is needed on earth. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Meaning that the Father and the Son are fully embodying the shadows and types previously given in the annual reminder of the feast and particularly the one of Sukkot. And now his people are with him. Look at verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So when we reach the pinnacle of Sukkot, the pinnacle of Sukkot, what you're seeing in Revelation is a pinnacle of Sukkot. There's no sun or moon or any other light source that are needed. The glory of the Father is the very light source of all creation, and the Lamb is its lamp. Come on now, church. That annual reminder of the feast is now fully personified and expressed exclusively by the Father and Jesus himself, the Lamb of God. And there's more. Verse 24. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The goal of the annual reminder of Sukkot and its zenith or pinnacle moment in God's purpose and plan is 
set on the nations entering into who God is. We are celebrating this annual reminder with complete joy because our God has secured for us an inheritance. He has made it his highest goal to redeem and restore that which he gave life to starting in Genesis 10. Meaning that what he did then in Genesis 10, he had planned all along and is still planning to come to its greatest fulfillment here in the book of Revelation. So here in Revelation 21, you see that the lamb is the temple. That he's dwelling, that the people of God are dwelling with God. That the lamb is the lamp. We're getting the attitude that it's for all the nations. I wonder what the next verse has to say. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, but wait, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What you are seeing, plainly seen in Revelation 21 and 22, the culmination of the entirety of all that God is about is that Jesus is Sukkot incarnate. Let me say it plainly for you. The lamb is the temple. The lamb is the lamp. And now the river of the water of life is flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. When we say that Jesus is Sukkot, this is exactly what we mean. But wait, there's more. Yeah. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, the tree on both sides of the river, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So what we're saying to you is that Ezekiel's vision and the Apostle John's vision is the exact same thing here. On both sides of the river that flows from the land stands the tree of life. With all of the fruitfulness of the ages being generated in a perpetual, ongoing, unending fashion. But we want to show you something. We're going to point to a, a, a difference between the two and let you see how beautiful this is. What Ezekiel saw is being realized fully that not only are the leaves of the tree for healing, which is the phrase and how it ends in Ezekiel 47. That the leaves of the tree are for healing. John tells you the entire pinnacle of Sukkot. That the trees, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. When we say that that is God's heart and that is what he is teaching us in an annual reminder kind of way, that the healing of the nations and God dwelling with man in right order, it in fact is the fulfillment of Sukkot. Let me read to you a couple more verses. Verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see the repetition of these principles of Sukkot that are just going on and on and on here in Revelation? The conclusion of the canon brings into focus what the annual reminder of Sukkot 
has been testifying to all along. The Lamb is dwelling with His people as their temple. He is their source of light. And His river of living water is providing healing for all nations of the world. Are you guys getting the clear point that the pinnacle of Sukkot is, are the nations? What we're looking at is an opportunity that we have right here and right now. And that opportunity is to have overflowing joy that we get to send our sons to the nations. Oh, and it's not something just in the distant future. It is something in our near future. Not just with this church alone, but what's happening in, in many of our one association churches. What's also welling up inside of us right now is an overflowing joy that he is our temple now. He is our river of living water now. He is the light of men inside of us now. And he will be throughout the entirety of the earth. That's why God is aiming at that. So everybody turn with us to Hebrews chapter 10. Say the pinnacle of Sukkot. Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. So here's what we're going to do. Y'all want to know what to do? We're going to rejoice, and we're going to hold fast to our confidence because our God does not lie. If he says a little while, you know what it is? It's a little while. If he has said it, it's going to happen, and the promise is that it will not delay. What does that require of us? It requires us to be joyfully attached to his timeline, joyfully attached to his character, because when, when you think about it, on a daily basis, trusting in his timing is trust in his character. Trust in God's timing is trust in his character. If he said it will not delay, you know what? It will not delay. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. Why? Because our God doesn't lie. He is truth, he speaks truth, and what he speaks does come into existence. Therefore, with that confidence in hand, with that clarity of God's character and us attached to his timing through trust, now let's turn to our final passage, Psalm 118. Say the pinnacle of Sukkot. The pinnacle of Sukkot. Hey, you guys, be joyful and kind of dance as you come up here on stage. Get that blood flowing. Caleb's shirt is dancing right now. Look at it. Celebration of a shirt right there. That's all kinds of moves, man. Psalm 118, are you ready? Verse 15. All right, I need y'all to respond as we read this too. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. 
The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. One more time, the Lord's right hand has done mighty things. So look, begin to stand to your feet. Stand to your feet with a joyful expectation of what God will do in the future because of what he has done in the past and what he is currently doing in the present. Okay, we're not done reading in Psalm 118, though. There, we got a little bit more for you. I mean, we wanted you to have revelation all the way through this message. On the final passage is Psalm 118. We're going to begin in verse 24. And we want to remind you that this sermon is about the pinnacle of Sukkot. The embodiment of Sukkot being seen in Jesus and the embodiment of Sukkot being seen in each and every one of you. Listen to this. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The dwelling, the temple, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine on us. With boughs in hand. A bough are tree branches. Like Sukkot, like Ezekiel's trees that are on either side of the river. Join us in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Which is where they would pour the water out from the pool of Shalom. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Y'all ready to do? Where was that water poured out at? Horns of the altar, right? And as with joy, you would uh, draw from the wells of salvation. And as with joy, you would pour it out there at the altar. So we're going to come to the altar. But it's in much different fashion than you would expect. We're going to come to the altar as a family. Because we have been given the joyful task to proclaim to the nations what God has done inside of each and every one of our lives. Yes, we are the solution. Yes, we are the answer. But you know what even more is clear now? Is that we get to be Sukkot right alongside our Messiah. And the pinnacle is the joy of seeing the nations become his inheritance and our inheritance. And you have what they need. So with joy, begin to make your way up to the altar. Let's pack it in. And we are going to rejoice before our God. Mighty God, we thank you for the gift. That you have given us of your word that gives us clarity of who you are, who we are. This annual reminder that the nations are yours and 
the nations into arms, mighty king. 